Our first passage in uh, Zechariah, our first passages in Zechariah and Ezekiel. Uh, Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. So if you hit the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just flip back a little bit in your Bibles. You hit Zechariah. Now, these Old Testament passages are wonderful because they help remind us that everything we're going to be reading in the book of Revelation, and especially in our passage, is informed by, and these Old Testament images saturate our passage in Revelation. So, we'll begin in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. Verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses go toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dapper ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Our second reading comes from Ezekiel, chapter 14. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets, roughly in the middle of the Bible or uh, just past the middle. We're going to begin our reading in chapter 14 from verse 12. Ezekiel 14, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and, may, and, it may, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, As I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more, when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, Some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Final reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 6, the final book of the Bible. Revelation, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. 
Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its, rider was na- its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal and looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. Morning. Morning. You're also dead. Uh, I feel tired, but you guys uh, seem more tired than I am. All right. Anyway, um, thanks for the readings there, Steve. Uh, he's gone off into the room now. Um, I was going to include also Mark 13 in the, in the other reading for us to be able to see. Uh, the background to a book like Revelation, chapter 6. Um, uh, I really want to emphasize that Revelation is not some mystical, strange book. I think I want to demystify it because I think uh, a lot of our experience of reading Revelation or reading it in books and seeing it in movies and it being portrayed as being some kind of strange book about some end-time apocalyptic you know, drama uh, that seems really... Um, uh, 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 untied to human experience. Uh, but as you realize, if you read the Old Testament and New Testament, everything in Revelation uh, is not new. It all comes from somewhere that has been mentioned before. The imagery that's being used here has been used before. The colors, the numbers, the objects. Um, and especially um, in the Gospel, we see um, the, the, the really the, backdra- the, the background or the foundation to the book of Revelation. Now, obviously, Revelation has... Um, <clears throat> is written and shown in kind of very vivid pictorial language, uh, but underneath that is something that's actually very clear uh, and very simple. So we'll, we'll work hard at making sure that we get that. So uh, each week you should expect some Old Testament because a lot of it comes from the Old Testament, uh, but a lot of it also comes from the Gospel, um, which, um, uh, yeah, so Mark 13 is the one to note down. Please keep your Bibles open to Revelation 6. We won't be jumping back too much into the Old Testament. I had those readings so that you are aware of the kind of stuff that's been said, but we won't directly reference them through the sermon. We'll be focusing more on what we see here in Revelation 6. <clears throat> As always, uh, there's the outline of the sermon that you can download from the church's website. So if uh, you can uh, download that, if you take notes, if you want to print that out so you can write, uh, please avail yourself of that. Uh, one more thing before we get started in today's sermon is... Um, What's going on here? Sorry. Is the singleness uh, workshop that's coming up this Friday and Saturday. So Friday is for the teens, Saturday is for everybody else. Uh, we have opportunity uh, from, the, uh, from the government regulations to be able to uh, increase the capacity of this hall. 
uh, if we do a ticketed and an allocated seating. Um, and so we're going to trial that for the first time this Saturday. Uh, there will be about double the amount of seats uh, that you see here today. So it's been more than a year since we've been able to do that. Uh, so it's essential that you sign up for this event. You'll get uh, a ticket and you'll get an allocated seat, uh, which you'll be ushered to. Uh, we'll be giving a bit more instructions during the week about how to keep safe uh, in this event. We're recommending everyone to put a mask on as you come in and leave the building, because obviously there'll be more people. Once you get seated, um, you can take it off. And also we encourage for people to stay in their seats uh, during the event. Uh, and then if you want to do chatting, you can chat outside afterwards. Um, so yeah, please do sign up. Uh, it'll be a great um, workshop to be a part of. Okay, so let's uh, dive into Revelation. Um, keep our Bibles open and let us go to God in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks uh, for this uh, wonderful book of Revelation, a book that maybe scares many of us and many of us have been put off reading it because it is filled with uh, language and, and visions that are hard to understand or hard to interpret. Uh, but we give you great thanks that uh, Revelation isn't written the visions in it are, don't just come out of the blue, but that you've prepared us for the meaning of this uh, revelation, the meaning of these visions in this book uh, from the Old Testament and especially through your son, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, even more so, we pray, uh, not just that we may be able to understand it, uh, but that your word today will give us uh, great comfort, uh, that you'll help us to grow in our worship of Jesus and our trust in him as we realize what he is doing in human history, to see that he really is in control, uh, no matter what is going on in this life, uh, whether in the sufferings of this broken world or particular Christian persecution, uh, help us to understand and to trust and to have hope uh, in spite of all that is going on. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the vision of uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which we looked at last week, uh, showed the Lord God Almighty, right, on His throne in the center of this amazing throne room scene. Uh, we saw that the Lord God Almighty uh, is the one at the center of all rule and all of creation. And then we also saw in chapter 5, the slain lamb, He walks up into the middle, right, onto the throne, uh, and He's the one who is worthy, right, to open up the seal, uh, the one that has the purposes and plans of God, uh, salvation being worked out in human history. And we see that at the end of chapter 4 and 5, this grand scene of amazing uh, worship, right? Absolutely everyone and everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth is uh, worshipping the Father and the Son. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 looks like the climax, right, of a, of a long-standing drama of a blockbuster movie, doesn't it? Um, it's the kind of dramatic finale, the, the triumphant, all-singing, uh, all-dancing finale, and we expect from this moment on, just the last few minutes of the movie where it's the, happily, uh, uh, the happy ever after kind of scene, don't we? The happy ever after. Now, I kind of wonder, you may also wonder, what expectations did the early Christians uh, have uh, when they heard and they first believed in Jesus? When they came to know that the Jesus that had just been, uh, uh, that had lived and died and rose again just a few years before uh, is the Son of God, uh, is uh, the King is the eternal saviour. He's the one who died and who rose again in order to conquer sin and death and the evil one. What expectations would they have had? And what expectations do you have or did you have when you first heard and believed the gospel of the almighty Son of God right, who died and rose again with all victory, right? all powerful in resurrection? What kind of expectations did you have? Perhaps they, back in the first century, and perhaps we today, would expect that if Jesus is the Son of God, who is King and who rules our life, who is on our side, that life should be easier, shouldn't it? That life should be better, more comfortable, more successful, more victorious, more peaceful. And yet, the reality, as we know, for the first Christians was far from this. Right, under Roman rule, they were persecuted for their faith. They were under all kinds of pressure and suffering all kinds of pains and losses. They were living in a world full of wars, right? Empire had come and empires had gone, nations fighting against nations. They were living through a civil war, right? The Roman Empire was always filled with infighting, strife, violence. There were problems in the workplace and in the home where there would be, there would be all kinds of sufferings there too, 
Not to mention right, the, the, the economy as well as the, the world filled with natural disasters. In the second half of the first century when this was written, uh, Rome had just been through an earthquake and, and a time of famine and pestilence. The reality of life of kind of wars and violence and hatred and difficulty and suffering and disasters has continued on year after year, century after century, all the way till today. And the question we might ask is, how does all this make sense in light of Revelation 4 and 5? How does it make sense? Is God really on the throne at the center and in control of all rule and creation? Is the lamb, the slain lamb, really in control and in charge of human history and the outworking of God's salvation plan? Right? If so, then how does it make sense of how life is? Why is life like this if God is on the throne and the lamb is in control? Well, as Jesus opens the seals that contains the plans and purposes of God, we will find out the answer. But the Lamb opens the seals and shows that He is indeed in control right, over the tribulations and troubles of this life, that He has a clear purpose for all the tribulations and troubles, that He is in control also of Christian persecution. There's a reason for Christian persecution, and there's also, thankfully, an end point that is to come. And in fact, the end point, as we know, as we heard, is that final day of judgment. And it is the final day of judgment that gives us crystal clear clarity about the purpose of tribulations and troubles in this life, as well as the persecutions that we as Christians face. So let's look into this chapter, right? The, op- the chapter begins right, with the Lamb opening the first seal. And the opening of the first seal triggers uh, the four living creatures to thunder out with a loud voice, Come! Um, this happens in the exact same way for the next, the, the next three seals, right? the first four seals. And of course, you know, we are very familiar with this picture, right? the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we kind of know them. They're, they're being unleashed by the opening of the first four seals. Um, and as we see the scene, um, it's as if right, Jesus is the king, the lamb's the king on the throne, and he's got his four generals, right, the four creatures around him, and every time he makes a command, one of the generals will execute the plan. Right? He will call forth the troops, the horse, and the horsemen right, to execute the plan, uh, the mission given for them to play. Now, the four living creatures, they summon and they send the horses and their riders under the command and the authority of the Lamb to fulfill the purpose, the command, the order of the Lamb. Now, once again, this isn't anything new for us who have just read Zechariah 6, who know our Bibles. Nothing is new in Revelation if you know your Bibles. And back in Zechariah 6, uh, it's kind of very similar, right? This time it's kind of horses pulling a chariot, but we've got the colors, we've got the four horses, and we saw how God uses this kind of imagery before, right, to patrol, to do something on the earth. Now you can read Zechariah 6 and study it for yourself and do all the comparisons, but what we're going to look at is the focus on chapter 6 of Revelation. I can't forward it, we can blank that screen really. Can we just go to the next slide? Yeah, just blank it out. Start. Okay, cool. Now, the horses, let's, let's look at the first one. The first horse is white. And already we know that white in Revelation symbolizes victory. Uh, and at, what, at the first glance, we might think maybe it's a good horse. But we realize that it comes as a package, right? The four horses. Uh, and it's, it is, this horse is given the authority to conquer, right? Empires, uh, it's, it's, sorry, it's given a, a crown symbolizing rule. Um, and, and it's given a, a bow symbolizing kind of warfare, Uh, And we're told that he's a man of war, a king that's hell-bent on conquest and conquering. And his role is to bring war on the earth. And as we've seen, right, empires come and empires go, nation rise against nations. The second horse is bright red, right, the symbol of the color of blood. And it's a rider, right, who takes peace away from the earth. And his role seems to bring about civil war, right, and personal enmity. But he, he makes people fight each other. Uh, His role is to turn people against each other to the point of such hatred that they would slay and slaughter each other, right? Drawing and and, and it's pouring out blood. The third third horse is black, right? Picture of death, and there's a rider on it holding a pair of scales. Now, of course, if you lived in olden times or if you 
perhaps even some parts of Asia, a scale symbolizes right, economy, right? Or, or be able to measure out goods. And, and this horse, his role is to bring about scarcity, right? Lack. There's a voice that calls out, right, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, this doesn't mean that much to us, does it, right? A quart for a denarius, uh, sorry, a quart of wheat for a denarius, what that's all about. Now, if you do a bit of research about what these things are, you will realize that a quart of wheat is just enough food for one person for one day. And three quarts of barley, uh, apparently barley is uh, like a lesser food than, uh, than wheat, uh, it's, you can buy the same for the same amount of money, uh, three quarts of barley to feed a family. And what's a denarius? A denarius is a typical day's wage right, for a typical worker. And so what we have here is very simple, right? To, to survive, just to be able to get daily amount of food for yourself or for your family requires a whole day's wage. We're talking about um, severely increased inflation, heightened inflation, that all you can afford is to buy food for the day. Apparently, these are about 8 to 16 times the normal price right, of food in the first century Rome. Now, this is what happens during times of war. And this is what happens during times of famine. When there is a, a, a disruption in the food source, then you'll have this kind of inflation. Prices go up. I mean, some people can still live, but obviously some people won't. Because the whole point of average wage is that some earn more and some earn less. And so some won't survive. The blackness of death prevails. And finally, the fourth horse is a pale horse, we're told. Uh, and the word is the word for kind of, we get chlorine. It's kind of this grayish green. It's the, it's the color of kind of a corpse. And we're told for the first time that the rider on this horse has a name. And his name is Death. And, and following behind him, either maybe sitting on the same horse or, or floating or running behind the horse, we're not sure, all right, is his friend, or his partner, Hades, which is the Greek word, the Greek place for the place of death. So the, the clear picture is this, right? Death will come, and then people will go to the place of the dead. And death comes, we're told, to a quarter of the earth. And it seems to come with the unleashing of the first four seals, right? Whether it's by sword in war or through hate and civil uh, and personal enmity or by famine due to natural disaster or greed or by pestilence or by wild beasts, death comes. It's not hard to see how the fourth horse kind of summarizes the impact, the consequence of the first four seals. It's to be taken as a whole, right? It's a, it's a symbolic picture of the four horsemen doing the work in unison. It's a very similar picture to Zechariah 6. The four horsemen go out to the four corners of the earth right, to do their thing. It's not, I think, the way that many Christians have interpreted this over the centuries, which is that there's some kind of order, right, some kind of chronology, kind of consecutive kind of unleashing of different kinds of judgment right before the end. I don't think so. I think this is symbolically the whole picture of what life is like in this period of time. The combined and ongoing experience of war, of infighting, famine, and death by various man-made and natural means was the experience unleashed on the first century church, first century Rome, the first century world, and has continued to be the same experience all through the ages till today. It's a picture of life in this period, isn't it? Now, this is the overview of the four horses. So let's dig a bit deeper and let's figure out what are we supposed to get right, from the, the vision of these four horses and these four horsemen. Now the first thing to do is to properly notice that uh, these four horsemen and the destruction that they bring is completely under the control and direction of the Lamb. Right? It's completely under the control and direction of the Lamb. It all kicks off with the Lamb opening each seal. And in the first four seals, the four living creatures who surround and submit to the lamb, they are the ones who summon the horse and sends out the riders. They're under the lamb's authority. They say, come, and the horses come, and then they go into the world. We also notice that everything that the horsemen have and that the horsemen do is given to them by the lamb. So in verse 2, the white horseman's crown given to him by the lamb. Verse 4, the red horseman permitted by the lamb right, to take peace from the earth. He is given a great sword by the lamb right, to do the slaying. 
The black horseman, verse 6, the voice of the lamb is the one who sets the price of the food. He's the one who gives instructions right, for the economy. Death and Hades, verse 8, given authority by the lamb to kill a quarter of the earth. Right? Most of us, I think maybe even all of us, know in theory and, uh, that, that, that Jesus is in control, don't we? Right? We know that Jesus is king. For those of us who have kids or who maybe teach in kids' church or who were kids once, uh, maybe you would have sung, you know, uh, Colin Buchanan, right? King of the Jungle. You know the song, right? Who's the king of the jungle? Sing with me, right? Who's the king of the sea? Come on, Joel. Who's the king of the universe? Who's the king of me? J-E-S-U-S. Yes, right? We teach the kids, right? Jesus is the king of the jungle, right? Of the sea, of the universe, of me. Everyone and everything, Jesus is in control. He's king. As adults, we might not sing that song, but we will say it, and we will sing it all the time, that Jesus is king, Jesus is God, Jesus is in control. Well, we all know this in theory, but what about in practice? What about when tribulation and trouble strikes you, when tragedy falls upon you? And what happens then? When, when, when you, know, and you hear news of another tsunami, another earthquake, Right, another something or other going on in the world, leaving a trail of death and destruction. Christ is in control. Right, when, when economies fail, right, when there's a pandemic, Christ is in control. When you get news right, of cancer or something terminal, Christ is in control. When you have mental illness and you've taken medication, you've seen psychiatrists, you've seen psychologists, you've seen your pastors, you've spoken to friends, you've read books, and nothing seems to help. Christ is in control. When you lose your job, when you lose your child, when you lose your spouse, when you lose your parents, Christ is in control. When you're at work and people are backstabbing you, when your boss is being abusive and harsh and being unfair, when you are failing a subject, when you can't get through a course, Jesus is in control. When a church is falling apart, right, when there's infighting and when there's division, when there's heresy perhaps, or, or when there's no money left because of mismanagement or some kind of sin, or when the pastor runs off with the secretary right, in adultery, Jesus is in control. When our inner life feels like an absolute mess, when we're struggling with sin, Jesus is in control. Control. The opening of the first four seals shows us that despite every evil and suffering, destruction and death in this world, it is all under the authority, the oversight, the control, and the rule of Jesus. When we say Jesus is king, when we say that he's in control, in charge of, of everything, it really does mean every single thing. In that moment of trial and tribulation, of trouble, do we really believe that? You see, the opening of the first four seals shows us that the unleashing even of the horsemen to bring tribulation and trouble is under the rule and control of the Lamb. So the question then is, if we know that Jesus is in control, the question then is why, right? Why is he doing this? Right? Why is it that in the scroll of God's plans and purposes for the world, in the outworking of salvation plan in human history, why is he unleashing the four horsemen? Why is he allowing death and destruction to come? And I think the first reason, the first clear reason is judgment. Right? The four horsemen bring judgment onto the world. Wars and violence and famine and death. Right? These are classic Old Testament pictures of God's judgment. Right? They're, they're not anything new. They're not some new experience of being human in this broken world. It's how God has always brought judgment onto this world. And it's always as a result of human sin. You see, God isn't doing things or allowing things to happen to us that we actually don't do to ourselves. You see, the expression of human sinfulness is writ large over human history. Right? Wars, right? We are just people who just keep on going to war with each other. Right, after the, the fall, Genesis 3, what is the first sin recorded in scriptures? It's the killing of Abel by his brother Cain. And you just expand that. 
right? Empire against empires, nations against nations, within nations, within families, within churches, within workplaces, everywhere. We just hurt and, and destroy each other. Even within religious groups, right? People rip each other apart by sin. We know that sin has brought a curse into this broken world, and, and it's broken it to the core, bringing about disease and disasters. And so it continues to be the Lamb's plan and purpose to bring judgment, the experience of punishment, as a result of our own human sinfulness and our sinful desires and our sinful choices. He wants us to keep on experiencing that. But did you realize, as part of the, the Lamb's plan, He's only bringing about death to a quarter, one quarter of the earth. It's only a partial punishment, a partial judgment. It's a foretaste of greater judgment that is to come. Now, I'll give you a sneak peek into the later parts of Revelation. Revelation 8 to 9, we move from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets, if you read through it, the judgment falls on one-third of the earth. And then when you go to chapter 16, we get to the seven bowls of God's judgment, and you'll see there that it's half of the earth who will experience judgment. Right? Revelation is giving us a picture of intensifying judgment, but it's only still ever partial while we live on this earth. But it's there to prepare everyone for the one out of one, 100% complete judgment that will fall on that last day of judgment. Right? The, the purpose of the judgment by the four horses is to give a foretaste of final judgment to respond before it is too late. Right? It's a warning for people to repent and to come to the land for salvation before it is too late. If you're not a believer here today, it is not too late. Right? The, the, this chapter, Revelation 6, is there to answer your question that you might have asked. Why is there evil and suffering in this world? Why is there death and destruction if God is in control? Well, you've got the answer now. Right? The Lamb is in control, allowing for judgment, Sending judgment, allowing us to experience partial judgment so that we will realize and be prepared for that final judgment. I hope that you'll be able to understand what God is trying to say to you if you don't yet believe in Jesus. Right? He's giving you one very clear answer to why there is suffering in this world because it is a, a foretaste of the judgment that He will bring down in full one day. And so today is the day, perhaps, that you might want to put your trust in the Lamb, receive forgiveness and salvation from Him. Do it while it still stands. Do it while it's only a quarter right, experiencing this judgment. Now, the four horsemen, they bring suffering as a punishment, but they also bring suffering as a purification for believers. Now, the second Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 14, I think, sheds light on this. Uh, it's probably a bit confusing. You might have to go back and read it again, Ezekiel 14. Uh, but we see in there that God has done this before. Right? He sent sword, he sent famine, he sent pestilence and death, uh, both as a punishment for the wicked, but also as a purification right, for the faithful. Right? For people to show themselves to be like the, the, the Job uh, and the, the Daniels and the Noahs right, of this world, of the men of faith. It was meant to be a test to see whether coming out of judgment, who will continue to hold fast to their trust in Jesus. Now, this message of suffering as a test of faith is repeated over and over through the New Testament. And as we heard you know, a few weeks back, Revelation 2 and 3 is all about that, right? For us to conquer in the midst of persecution and suffering. You see, under Christ's full control, we experience suffering as believers for a purpose. And we experience suffering as believers for a purpose, to, to grow our faith and to grow us to, to be more like Jesus. And so it is crucial that we don't become faithless when we suffer. Right? We don't stop believing. How do you know that you are becoming faithless in your suffering? Well, you keep on questioning God. Like, why is there suffering? When God has already revealed to us so many reasons why there, are, there is suffering. But yet we keep questioning and questioning, and, and, and we maybe even have an expectation that we should be free from suffering, even though God so clearly revealed to us that experiencing suffering is the normal Christian life. 
And we mustn't be fruitless in our suffering. Because if suffering is meant to grow our faith, then is that what's happening with your faith as you suffer the brokenness of this world? Or are you simply stuck in your despair and in your feelings of hopelessness and helplessness and just become so passive and perhaps even shrink back further and further away? Are you being fruitless in response to suffering? What we must do instead, I think, is to keep asking the Lord to keep our faith strong and even to grow it. We must ask Jesus, what is he doing with this experience of suffering that's helping me to grow to be more like Jesus? You know, God's Word often tells us to rejoice in suffering and to be thankful in everything. And obviously, everything includes suffering. It's not like the Bible is being sadistic or masochistic, right? That we have to enjoy suffering, so we rejoice and give thanks. No. We rejoice and give thanks in suffering because it has a purpose. It is there to grow our faith, to become more like Jesus. Wars, violence, famine, disease, disasters. Now, these these, uh, trials and tribulations, they impact everybody. Christians and non-Christians, believer and unbeliever alike. But with the next seal opening, we see that Christians experience an extra dose of suffering and difficulty. As Christians, we don't just experience the kind of suffering that the rest of the world experiences living in this broken, sinful, judged world. And this fifth seal, as it opens, it gives us actually a glimpse into heaven. If the first four seals are the horsemen going into the world, all right, give, uh, bringing about judgment, um, the next seal brings us into heaven, doesn't it? to give us a scene of this altar that's in heaven. And we see these souls as if kind of sacrificed under the altar. They've been slain, we're told, for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They are believers who had been martyred, right? who had died because of the faith, because they held on to their confession, because they stood firm in bearing testimony, witnessing to the fact that they believed in Jesus Christ. They were probably very bold about it, telling people around and their family and friends. And so we see that Christian suffering for the sake of Christ, even unto death, even this, is part of the definite plan of Jesus. It's part of the seal opening, right? This is the normal Christian life. Now, it seems to, I'm not sure if it seems to you, but it seems to me anyway that I say this a lot, don't I? In SLE Church, we seem to say that suffering is a normal part of Christian life. Uh, these days, we talk a lot about kind of um, what is normal, right? You know, the COVID normal. Have you ever been hearing that phrase, COVID normal? It's kind of a grating phrase, but I guess it's kind of what we have to live with. What is, what is the new normal, right, in light of COVID-19? And so all these new practices, new hygiene practices, social distancing, new normal. Now, what do we have to know about the COVID normal situation? It's so that we, we can be prepared, right, to safeguard ourselves and to know what life will be like as we have all these restrictions, as we live in light of a pandemic. Well, it seems to me that the Bible is very clear, God is very clear about what being Christian normal is. It is for us to be able to, to have the right expectations of how to live in this world. And Christian normal is to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's not that it's a very fun topic, a very uplifting topic to talk about. It would be nice to talk about all the motivational stuff all the time. But why does the Bible speak so much about Christian normal requiring suffering? It's so that we won't have the wrong expectations about life. It's so, so that we won't just fall apart when opposition and persecution come. Now, of course, opposition and persecution comes only to those who bear witness to Jesus those who hold firm to their faith, those who are committed to testifying to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ with our life, yes, but also with our words. Now, obviously, we're not going to be opposed. We're not going to be persecuted if we are like a secret Christian, if we are like a shrink-back, shy, ashamed Christian. But for the faithful Christian, persecution comes. Now, persecution isn't something that is to be received passively, though. Have a look at verse 10 and verse 11, right? Read along. Revelation 6, verse 10. These martyrs, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so these uh, martyrs, they cry out, right, like a, like a child, and right in the backseat of a car on a long car ride, right, crying out, are we there yet? How long more to go, right? Are we there yet? How long more to go? How long more for this anti-Christian violation to go? How long more, God, before you will do something about this, before you will bring an end to this, before you will bring judgment? See, this cry for vindication, this yearning for the persecution to end, this desire for Jesus to be properly honored and worshipped, and for us Christians to be seen, not just to be on the right side of history, but on the right side of eternity, this is a, a good thing. It's a right expression of faith. We're not, we're not suckers, right? Just soaking up the persecution, saying, bring it on, right? As if, you know, we enjoy the pain. The persecution of believers is a direct uh, affront, insult to God and to Jesus, to His name to yearn for us to be shown to be in the right, to yearn for Jesus to be glorified, that is the right desire for us to have. Now the Lord Jesus Christ in the driver's seat, he kind of turns back uh, and he hands the martyrs white robes. He hands the It's kind of like a, a, a warm, comforting blanket of assurance. Because what does the white robe symbolize? Well, white symbolizes victory. He's like, there, there, guys. You, you guys have made it. You have conquered. You have endured. Your sanctification process is complete. Even though you are slain and under the altar as a sacrifice, put on this white robe of victory. You have been made complete. You have passed the test. You have conquered. And he assures them, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ they too will have to go through the same process. For a little while longer, for a little while longer, they will have to go through the same process, the same experiences. They too will have to conquer. Some even unto death. A little longer. And a little longer, the sixth seal is open. All that awaits as we as we wait for that day, for all things to be made real, is the final judgment. And when the sixth seal is open, the vision of that final dreadful day is revealed. And once again, as you read through this, right, it's a classic Old Testament apocalyptic vision of judgment. Right? Cosmic events, cosmic disruption and destruction, symbolizing universal judgment. If you turn back to Isaiah 2, you can read that again. It is a judgment on those who persecute God's people and those who worship idols, right? Who dishonor God. Now, this cosmic disruption and destruction is something that we've already seen a glimpse of, right? In Jesus Christ himself, in the death of Jesus. Right? The slain lamb who unleashes the sixth seal. We've already seen a picture of this kind of cosmic destruction. Do you remember the solar eclipse at Jesus' death? The earthquake that shook the earth? Right, that, 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 that tore the curtain temple in two, the blood that poured out from Jesus. There's not fairy tale uh, additional you know, legendary uh, uh, elements to Jesus' death. They're part of the vision, the imagery, the symbolism of judgment. That on that cross, Jesus uh, received and, and, and absorbed right, the wrath, the judgment of God as a foretaste of the final judgment that is to come. That final day of wrath will be unimaginably terrifying. The white-hot righteous anger of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, will be unleashed. I want you to visualize this, right? A, a wrathful Lamb. That's such a weird picture, isn't it? I, I forgot to put a picture up, but I can you imagine a Lamb, right? A Lamb here, fluffy, woolly Lamb, right? You go to pat it, so nice and soft, kind of oily, actually, because they got lanolin, Okay? And they're so nice to draw, right? You can draw a little lamb with a little nose, little ears. So cute. Right? So cuddly. So fluffy. And then we're told, lamb who is wrathful. But Jesus is the lamb of God, right? Why is he wrathful? Well, he's the lamb of God who sacrificed his very own life 
to absorb and to take on himself the, the wrath of God for those who believe. Now, I want you to think of something, right? How, why is it that the, 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 the Jesus, who takes on the wrath of God to bring us forgiveness and salvation, why is he so angry? Well, let me ask you, if, if someone hurts you and sins against you, that's one thing, isn't it? You're hurt. Some does something. But then you, you do everything you possibly can right, to reach out to that person who has hurt you, to offer them forgiveness, right? to say that I'll take all of the hurts and all the harm that you've done to me and I'll forgive you. But then they turn around and they say, I don't need your forgiveness. I didn't do anything wrong. You can take that forgiveness and shove it back in your face. Sorry, I didn't mean to you. You, whoever, right? Imagine, right? I imagine if I did that to you. How? I mean, it's one thing to be hurt from someone's sin, but then for forgiveness to be thrown back in your face when you've done everything to forgive them. How angry do you think you would be? And we're talking about God here, right? The Son of God. We have sinned against Him in an infinitely terrible way. He has done everything to provide forgiveness, even to the point of death and absorbing of the wrath of God Himself. And we say, no thanks. And we throw it back in his face. It's no wonder that the white, hot wrath of the Lamb will one day be poured out on those who have rejected him. We've never ever seen and we've never ever glimpsed the kind of anger that we will see on that day. Righteous anger, just anger that will be poured out. The appropriate question to ask as we prepare for that day of terror is the question that's asked in verse 17. When that great day of wrath comes, who can stand? And the answer is, come back next week. Come back next week. Right? All will be answered in chapter 7. Right? Now, let me conclude. I think you know the answer, but come back next week or just read it on yourself. Right? Now, let's finish up. Nothing bad and nothing sad in this entire world, in, in our country, in our economy, in our church, in our families, among our friends, in ourselves, is outside of Christ's control. There is a purpose for everything that happens, even the evil, the suffering, the death, and destruction in this world. Already we saw in the last series in the book of Job, that one of the purpose of suffering is to humble us, to see that our wisdom is limited in order that we might fear God. Here in Revelation 6, we see that one of the purposes of tribulations of life is judgment, it is a foretaste of final judgment. We are experiencing partial judgment now so that unbelievers with the opportunity to respond to Jesus, to the Lamb in faith, to stop rejecting His offer of forgiveness. It's an opportunity for believers to keep witnessing to Jesus. Right? To know that the partial judgment that we're experiencing is so that the, the, the opportunity for people to turn back to God, to back to Jesus is now. And so for believers to keep witnessing to the gospel. Here in Revelation 6, we see that persecution is real and that it can lead to death. The martyrs in heaven long for that day of vindication that final judgment brings. That day when, 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 when the, the suffering uh, of Christians by, uh, because of their faith will stop and they'll be shown to be in the right, but even more so that the, the Lamb will be glorified and worshipped as He ought to be. The day when justice will be served right, for the good and glory of the Lamb and His flock. And so the, the, the message is simple, right? Don't lose sight of Jesus in control. Don't lose sight of the purpose of judgment and suffering. Don't lose faith. Don't keep questioning when you suffer. Don't keep grumbling and complaining. Instead, let suffering do its work in growing your faith, in making you more like Jesus, in making you long, right, even for that terrible day of judgment to come when all things will be made right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you great thanks for this vision that you've shown us today. With such clarity, you tell us, you assure us, you comfort us that all of the death and destruction, the partial judgment 
uh, that we are experiencing now and have been experiencing for the last 2,000 years and even beyond that is all part of your purpose and plan. We acknowledge once again and we grieve at the fact that it is human sinfulness that you have to deal with, that you have to bring judgment because you are righteous and we are unrighteous, we are sinful, we are rebellious. And yet we give you great thanks for your grace and mercy that in your unleashing of partial judgment now, you give us opportunity to respond to you in faith and repentance. You give us all the opportunity to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. You give us as believers the opportunity to keep sharing our faith and to keep uh, 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 begging for people to come to receive salvation in Jesus. For those of us who suffer as believers because of our faith, please help us to keep standing firm. Please help us to long for the day of vindication. We thank you for the comfort that those who have already died for their faith have been given a white robe, such great assurance of their conquering, of having been made pure already. And we pray that we, we who now continue on in this life, that we too would conquer, that we too would strive for that white robe of victory. Help us to respond rightly to suffering, whether of the general kind or of the Christian kind. Help us to conquer, help us to keep being faithful, to keep being fruitful, to keep making it to the end. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. We've only got one question on the Q&A. So uh, if you're quick with your fingers, you can type in a quick question before I finish answering this. Uh, and if not, then this will be the only question. Okay. Hi, Pastor Ben. Hi, Kara. <laughs> uh, does the book of Revelation give us much indication of the timing of chapter 6 events with regards to the final day of judgment? Um, I think the only indication for timing is that it happens uh, after the lamb is uh, slain but standing. So it's clearly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It sets off these events. Um, and that's pretty much all the timing information we're given. So with the, the, the events of the six seals being open and the six seal being kind of the beginning of the end, there is really no timing as to when it happens. And in fact, if you compare to, say, Mark 13, the description that, that, Mark, that Jesus gave in Mark 13 of what to expect in the coming days after his death and resurrection is pretty much what this is saying. So it seems to be an indication that this is the present experience of the first century church and will be the ongoing experience of humanity. Uh, the seven trumpets that come up later with the one-third of the world affected and then the seven balls with half of the earth being affected seems to suggest there will be an intensification of this kind of signs and wars and pestilence and whatever before the final judgment. So I think the, 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 the three sets of seven, um, they're not so much called sequ uh, sequential, but expanding kind of views uh, of, of the troubles of this time before final judgment. So I wouldn't use it to predict any kind of year or place or events, um, but what we can know is that obviously it's kind of a silly thing to say, but every day is a day closer to the final day of judgment. Um, and um, anyway, every day is an intensification of the experience of brokenness. And these are all uh, given to us uh, for unbelievers to prepare for final judgment, for believers to keep conquering. Um, so I, I really, yeah, beyond that, I, I really don't think it is right or helpful to use anything in Revelation as a way to predict times of when they happen or, or even places of the world. So later on, when we get to the beast, it's like, oh, is it Russia? Is it China? Is it US? Whatever. Uh, you can find that, you know, people have tried to speculate with all kinds of details there. But Revelation, I don't think it's trying to do that, right, with its symbolism and language. Um, hopefully that helps. Um, if not, then, yeah, kind of speak to me a bit more. I would have much more to say, but yeah, we can talk a bit more about that. All right. I mean, just refresh one last time to give everyone a chance. No more. Hang on. No more, that's it. Okay, um, thank you all, and I'll see you all whenever I see you all next. God bless.